are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well Digital Noise is back, and we've got a stack of stuff to talk about. Well, that's kind of our, you know, ages. That's what we do. And I'm here with John Golson. I was worried I did something wrong. There were no Italian thrillers in this time. I know. This time. I thought maybe I'd done something to offend you or <laughs> hurt your feelings. There was no Polizai. There was no Giallo. There were no Spaghetti Westerns. No, no. That'll come in the next stack. Actually, it's not even in the next stack, I don't think. Maybe there was just like, maybe Arrow ran out of one oh, movie. So it wasn't personal. No, it wasn't uh, personal. No, I'm sorry. There is a Western and there is a horror. Okay. okay. But, you know, we have a lot of stuff to talk about. But I feel like, first off, I got to say, thank you for listening to Digital Noise. Digital Noise is our home release show. Uh, if you go to the actual page of Digital Noise on oneofus.net, you'll see a bunch of images with links to all the Amazon pages where you can buy these movies. And if you do buy those movies, we get a pleasant little kickback. But if you start from any of our Amazon links and buy whatever from there, we get a kickback. So please use our Amazon links for whatever you are going to continue on forward with buying. Yes, John? I, I bought a Swamp Thing figure through through the one of us Amazon. Link. See, you're doing it. So when if it comes up it right. and you check and see who your who your you know your buyers were, Dude. and you see that Swamp Thing figure on the list, no one me. is more excited about Swamp Thing right now than John Golson. Oh, tonight after the show, that I already talked to Wendy and I was like, "Do you think I'm watching Swamp Thing immediately after we record, or am I doing it Friday <laughs> night like a normal sane person?" <laughs> She's like, "You're going to watch it tonight." I'm like, "I don't know though. I may." Like, it may be something to get me through my work day, like that treat at the end of the eight hours tomorrow I mean, is Swamp Thing. I mean, I feel like home. this probably ex- defines you as well, but I know other people who have said, I bought the DC streaming channel entirely because of Swamp Thing. Yeah, it was a big, it was a big factor. Yeah. I mean, I... I Doom Patrol's fantastic. Yeah, Doom Patrol's great. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to what they do with Swamp Thing. Oh, me too. Me too. And then Good Omen starts in uh, two and a half hours. Oh, cool. So, <laughs> annoyed at the critic friends who already got advanced copies already talking about it online. Like, it's so good! I'm like, shut up! I'll see for myself. <laughs> I've read the books eight times all night, or the book eight so, times. Terry Pratchett had a <laughs> had a viral tweet today in a roundabout way. He, there's That's apparently difficult. a 1996 interview with where Pratchett interviewed Bill Gates and Pratchett specifically said, don't you think that the internet will allow people to say, I am the Institute of blah, 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 blah. And then make up a bunch of stuff. Like maybe the Holocaust didn't exist. And I have the proof because I'm Dr. So-and-so and I'm an authority. And this is in 96. Oh, wow. And Bill Gates goes, no, that's impossible. Actually, the internet's going to make it, it's going to vet people that much better and yeah, there, that's what that happened. won't ever be a possibility because the internet's going to make it where only experts and only the real uh, sure. authorities are going to be able to post anything about history and so and science and that's clearly so and so what forth. happened. Yeah, I was like, wow, that's uh, that's pretty prescient of Terry Pratchett. There, he <laughs> he predicted uh, 2019. He said he was a Cassandra. 
Yeah. <laughs> He's like, it's not going to work. It's all going to go bad. No, don't be such a Cassandra. <laughs> <laughs> and he was correct. But let's get into the actual movies that we have here to talk about. Although I wish I could just quiz you about Godzilla, but we already did that before the show because uh, I haven't seen it yet and you have. But we're going to start off with the 4K releases of the original four Batman films. Well, not original four Batman films, but the the first four that were prominent and heavily funded, which is yeah. starting with Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, the, and then Batman and Robin. The, the, the 89 movie officially kicked off the comic book movie craze because I think every year since 1989, there's been at least one film based on a comic book that's been I, released. I, I think that is the demarcation point for saying that, like, certainly... Batman is the one that made the Hollywood realize there's a lot of money in this thing. We thought it was just they were they never treated it seriously before yeah. that really. Like there was that brief period with Superman where they had Superman, Superman two, and then it felt like after Superman three and four they were like, well, it was just a fad. Was their take on it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm not I'm not sure why stuff languished until really eighty nine, and then. And and then again, it took a little while for them to figure out that it wasn't Batman as a pulp hero. Because then we got Dick Tracy, and we got the Shadow, and we got like all of these uh, these sort of like nineteen thirties, nineteen forties characters. And I think it took a while for Hollywood to figure out like what people actually wanted. But yeah, we got a comic book movie every single year from eighty nine till obviously today. Yeah, yeah. And now we get like nine or ten. Yeah, which it's like this. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> uh, am I wrong? It feels like that. Uh, so I go back on these original Batman films with a certain amount of I I I more and more separate myself from nostalgia the older that I get, where I'm like, no, it's not as good as you felt when you were younger. And now I feel like watching these things. I'm very disappointed with all four of these movies. Oh. I know. You love the first two. I, lo- I love the first two. I think the first one does tie into nostalgia. I was 14. For me, it was the movie that made me really love movies. Mm. It made me aware of the kind of stamp that a director could bring to a film in a way that I was not really cognizant of before then. I mean, growing up in the 80s, Steven Spielberg was sort of like a name brand, but I don't think that I could tangibly identify what he brought to movies during my preteen years. But Tim Burton coming off of, like, Pee Wee and Beetlejuice, Batman really solidified, like, whoa, like... I can see now what a director can do to a movie and influence its art and its acting and the decisions that are made. Um, and it was really the one that from there on out, like that's the movie that cemented my path in regards to, I am now officially a movie fan. I saw that movie five times over the course of that summer. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I'm not one to go back again and again in the theater. I saw it over and over and over again. Um, I was all about it. I think if anything over the years, um, returns was really disappointing the first time I saw it. And I think Returns has actually grown in my estimation over the years. I think as I've gotten older, I don't have any particular nostalgia attached to Returns because I didn't care for it. But, right. But as I've gotten older, I think it's I, it's kind of cheeky. I like it's kind of I like its tone. Uh, it's a little it's it it's got a little bit of winking that's not in the original Batman that they go way too far with winking. They blink till their eyes are shut in Batman <laughs> Forever and Batman yeah. and Robin. Um, but there's something about Batman Returns that I've grown to really kind of dig as I've gotten as I've grown into adulthood. And those first two films are Tim Burton films, and it was still when Tim Burton was 
all but unimpeachable in film fans' like mm. estimation. I mean, having done Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice and what have at you. Which is her hands at that, uh, between at Batman and yep. Batman Returns. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and I, I certainly go back and go like, uh, I, I talk a lot of shit about Tim Burton, and I think it's well-deserved. But his first five or six films have so much amazing stuff in it that you're like, this guy launched onto the screen with an explosion that the whole world took notice of. I mean, he was kind of the weird, gothy Wes Anderson of his time, in yeah. a way. But unfortunately, he never really had a huge amount of depth, and he kind of had just his one bag of tricks, and that was it. And then he just kept replaying the same tricks, and after a while, we all went, okay, dude, come on, do I, something else. Yeah, I've had Tim Burton on the mind lately, I think because of Dumbo, and I didn't see Dumbo, but it's I, terrible. in listening to reviews of Dumbo, I started to reflect on Tim Burton, and I think that he... I think he struggled so long. I think I think losing his job at Disney Animation and feeling like an outsider and and kind of having that gap in his early adulthood before he did start making major motion pictures. Mm-hmm. I think that's affected him in a weird way where like I'm afraid of being really poor again. I have been really poor and I've had those like it's the worst. I've had those terrible days where I don't know where my next meal is coming from if at all. And I don't want to go back to that again. And so you operate from a place of fear. And there's a part of me that sees Tim Burton, who was so distinct, kind of kowtow to blockbuster filmmaking and make movies that I can't imagine. Like, yeah, he kind of puts a stamp on them. But I, I really... I, I, when you look at stuff like Edward Scissorhands, he feels more well-suited for that type of film than he does blockbuster filmmaking. And I will argue, I think Edward Scissorhands and uh, Beetlejuice are better than either one of the first uh, of his two Batman films. Yes. As a movie. And I feel like he's, I feel like he's terrified of moving away from the blockbusters. I, I, that's my only, that's my only guess into his psyche is that he, he's paralyzed with, I have to make these movies that make $500 million overseas and this is what I do. And yet, weirdly, and, and, I would say, outside of like his early stuff, his two best films were his f- attempts to make little tiny indie films, Big Eyes and uh, Ed Wood. Yeah. You know, which are both fascinating and eminently rewatchable films. But it's just when he falls back into the, the gimmicks over and over again. Anyway, we're going off on a tangent, just going to later Tim Burton career. But as far as the Batman movies go, I've kind of gone full circle to some degree where I was like, I loved him when I was a kid. The first one, mm. the second one, I remember going, I really like this and parts of it. I really like, but Batman, but the penguin makes me physically nauseous to watch. And I'm having <laughs> a trouble making that work. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that just everything doesn't fit together. Everything doesn't fit together in the first one, but it's, I've kind of gone full circle where go, I go back now and I watch them and I'm like, these are entertaining movies and they're very colorful and they're very creative and they're fun to watch. And I, it's, he's the guy who broke the, the, the glass ceiling for comic book movies, I yeah. guess you could say. Uh, so full credit for that. through the glass ceiling. Yes, like he Batman did. did. Exactly. And those first two movies, they're like, I, I would argue the second one, Batman Returns, in terms of visual design, is even more pretty than Batman is. Mm-hmm. Like, he had more money to work with. It's like, it's, it's startling how gorgeous some of the sequences are in Batman Returns. But he's also got that inherent ugliness that's right under the thing. But then you got Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. So, you know, it, yeah. all, it all balances out. Now, Joel Schumacher's second two films, 
Like, they were trying very... Tim Burton was supposed to direct Batman Forever. The studio forced him out, said no. We, I, I don't know what the exact circumstances were, but they said, no, no, we're going to go a different direction and just made him and then rehired him as a producer. There was, there was anger from Batman Returns licensing partners over the tone of Batman Returns. Mm. Um, they felt like it was too dark, too violent, too adult, too sexual, and they had all these kitty tie-ins. They had Happy Meals and everything else, and so there was a lot of pressure, anecdotally, particularly pressure from McDonald's, uh, who came back to Warner Brothers and was like, look, you sold us a bill of goods, and, and McDonald's, with our kids' stuff, we don't associate ourselves with that level of darkness. Mm-hmm. And that was Warner, part of Warner Brothers' decision was, again, they wanted something that was they were concerned that they wouldn't get something that was palatable to their licensing partners, is the short story of it. And Schumacher, apparently, who has, by the way, I know we all like to immediately associate him with Batman and Robin and nothing else, but has made some very dark films in mm-hmm. his time. I mean, I always say Schumacher is a, a hit and miss isn't strong enough to emphasize the misses, but he has made a few good films, like Tigerland, this wonderful movie, and that's very dark. Uh he came onto this thinking he was going to continue on with the darkness and do this really cool dark story. And then was basically told no. And if you want to keep your job, you're going to do this. So he said, well, what the fuck do I do? So he did the only thing you could do at that point was embrace the sixties Batman. And that's what he was trying to do. And I, to this day go, I have a harder and harder time blaming Schumacher for what's as bad as, as what is about Batman and Robin and to a lesser extent Batman forever, because he was just trying to make lemonade, you know, he was doing the best he could with what he had been ordered to do, which is like, we'll just twist this back into the Adam West type of deal. So like you watch Batman forever and it is the beginning of that sort of like, it's almost every line of dialogue in it is a one liner. And yeah, so keep it goldsmith, man. But it's better written than Batman and Robin's. Every line is a one-liner, which is, you know, to the point where it's just so absurd you can't believe it. Who knows? A hundred years from now, they might look back on it as a classic. Yeah, I find those two to be of a piece. I know there are people that consider Batman and Robin like absolutely the worst, but I consider Forever and Batman and Robin to be two sides of the same coin. No pun intended. Right. Um, I think I, I actually think that. If you're ta- if you're comparing villains, I actually think that Schwarzenegger he's Schwarzenegger is given crap to say he's given awful stuff to say, but I think from an acting standpoint, I think Schwarzenegger's really trying. I think there are parts where he's where he plays Mister Freeze where he's going for the pathos or like the hurt with his wife, you know, wanting to heal his wife as much as he's capable. Yeah, yeah, but I but you can you can feel his effort like. And and I don't know that I can necessarily say that about Uma Thurman or like uh, Jim Carrey or even well, no. Tommy so Jones, I I will so. say that about Jim Carrey. I think Jim Carrey is the standout thing about Batman Forever. I think yeah. he is actually kind of exceptional in it. He's been given a role to do that you're like do you, but just ten percent less. You know, pull back just a little bit, and I think he actually makes it work on the whole with the shitty script that Batman Forever has. Yeah, I, I think he's a standout. Tommy Lee Jones clearly doesn't want to be there. Like in almost every scene, you can tell he's just going through the motions, kind of. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy how over the top they chose to make that character. But 
you know, I mean, whatever. They're very colorful films. They're people who, obviously, there's a cult following for them. And uh, Warner Brothers is excited that every time they that there's a renewed interest in them, they can double down and sell them as a box set where you have to own those two as well. Yeah. <laughs> Although... Weirdly, the box set of the 4K edition isn't even out yet, which is a, in a steel box. Uh, they've only set them out now separately, where you can, can indeed buy them separately. The good news is, is that they put a huge amount of effort into fixing what issues there were with the previous Blu-ray remaster. This is the best these movies have ever looked by, I would say, a pretty sizable margin. Uh, they are definitely up to 4K standards uh, as well. They have also uh, uh, done a newly remixed Dolby Atmos soundtrack uh, for for uh, the audio here. It's better than it has ever been. I'm not as much of an audio head as some people are. I like I literally just watch my movies in stereo at house. I don't have a have a surround sound setup, but I know people like they're all about how that works. And this is as this is as good a version of these films that exists, and it's a huge step up from the previous version of them. Mm. So I mean that's something right there. If yeah. you're if you're someone like I've got a white album of these things and just like gotta buy it whenever the better version comes out, this is decidedly a better version. But absolutely no new b- bonus features. None. It's every bonus feature from the previous two editions that have come out. Like this combines the huge amount that were on the Blu-ray editions and then a few extras that were on the previous edition that had come out and to one thing, but there's nothing new here. They didn't go back and do any extra retrospectives or anything, but it's all here. Like every bonus feature that's ever been made for these movies is included with these discs. Cool. Yeah. Of course on the Blu-ray version, not on the 4k version, but the Blu-rays were also remastered, which oh. is interesting and rare. That almost never happens. But yeah. They went, I didn't, went I didn't realize that. Yeah. They went back and remastered the Blu-ray version as well. Cause nowadays you just like when Blu-ray first came out, if you got a Blu-ray, it's also got a fork. It's also got a DVD. Now right. if you get a 4k, it's always also got the Blu-ray version in it. And usually the Blu-ray is just whatever the previous release was. This is actually an upgraded Blu-ray presentation of it as well. So hooray, I guess I got a 4k player, so I'm good. <laughs> Either way, John's That's like my. Trying to decide right now if he's going to buy these. I want the first two, but I can't. I'm trying not to get a. We talked about this before we started recording, but I'm trying not to buy a physical. I'm trying not to buy a new format of physical media. So, okay. I mean, trying. I'm just expecting the apocalypse to happen every day now, and I figure the only thing I have to, worthy of selling at all is that I'll be like the the entertainment king. <laughs> yeah, I'm tired of I'm tired of my stuff taking up my master bedroom. So I'm, that's uh, yeah, that's what the the long and short of it is. But two things about Batman and Robin, real quick, before we move off. Oh, sure, sure. Um, I think it's incredibly cruel for them to make Arnold Schwarzenegger have to say the word "bird" over and over and over. He, the man cannot say it. He says "baton brid," "baton brid," over and over and over. They make this man say "baton brid," and it has my probably my favorite line from any. Batman movie that's ever been made. I know a lot of people love, like, some days you just can't get rid of a bomb from the 66 version. Sure. My favorite is when out in public, Batgirl goes, Bruce, it's me, Barbara. (laughs) (laughs) That shit makes me laugh, and I don't know why. It's just clueless. All the way he goes, Batgirl, shouldn't that be Batperson? And she goes, Bruce, it's me, Barbara. (laughs) Anyways. 
I Moving can see on. that, especially in today's context. Going, that's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. All right, so moving on. Uh, so there is a very old 1938 exploitation film called Sex Madness. Now, this was following on the path of a lot of other films like it, especially the one everybody knows, Reefer Madness. But the idea was this is the movie trying to... I say trying to. That was using its its public explanation of like we're trying to explain to people why sex is dangerous and like premarital sex is dangerous and all this stuff but ultimately they were making a sex movie in order to get people to sit down in in the theater Mm -hmm. right and it's garbage i mean this is not as good a movie as reefer madness which is not saying a huge amount because reefer madness is not a good movie yeah good musical though i've never seen the musical it's pretty good Kristen bell's in it well this one also has a gimmick this release has a gimmick. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the, the Kino put this out with, uh, Patton Oswalt, who's playing a character who has a podcast. I mean, to the point where it's a little like, okay, just get past this. We're watching internet screens with the arrow moving around. Like, here's how you click on stuff and go to the podcast, uh, named Jimmy Morris, who's known as the film dick. And he's interviewing a guy named Chester Holloway, who's voiced by Z- Z- Rob Zabrecki, who, I forget. He was like the lead singer of, oh, he's the lead singer of Possum Dixon. Okay. Uh, I remember that. It was a popular band in the nineties. Yeah. Andy band. And he's since. Your emergency's about to end. Yeah. There you go. And has since moved on to being sort of like a alternative magician, which got to be big in like the 2000s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of my good friends, Brian, Brian Brushwood is an alternative magician and finally moved on to going, okay, well, that's not as popular as it used to be. Um, and the, Context here is like, oh, I finally wanted to interview this guy. He's what the grandson of the guy who directed yeah. this, and he, oh, he's promised some really great insights. This is going to be super exciting. And uh, Patton is watching this film in a way like he's so excited about this movie. Like it's so like 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 not. He never says it's a bad movie. He's like, no, I'm really like I, I worship this kind of thing. The idea is he's one of those film guys who worships this kind of trash, right? Which Sex Madness is a real film, which is trash. Uh, and so the guy, as it goes along, he's constantly dropping more and more information, and then along the way, it becomes clear that this is—I mean, obviously, it's comedy. They're playing roles, but that they're trying to have a plot. To it, so they're yeah. like doing mystery science theater, but with a story with the commentary. He's making up facts that weave together into like a alternate narrative of what's actually going on behind the scenes of the movie. I I kind of needed a sanity check because I didn't really care for this. I, it never it's it lacks authenticity. Um, I think looser, more improvisational style would have helped it sound like a real podcast. Mm-hmm. I think it sounds heavily scripted. Oh, totally. Uh, yeah. And that really hurts the conceit of the film because it doesn't even sound like a podcast or audio commentary. It sounds like two people trying really hard to like play these characters. And, and it's weird because I think Oswald is better than that, but I'm surprised it didn't have like a loose improv sort of feel to it. Well, I mean, I get the... Uh- I can only assume that this was a, a project that uh, Rob Zabrecki, that w- this was his conceit, right? Yeah. Uh, and he's not a comedian. You know, that's not his gig. And I was like, imagine, reimagine this film in a way where they were, or even doing anything else like this, 
where it's a comedian like Patton and another comedian who's great at improv going, here's some plot points we need to hit along the way. But other than that, let's just improv it and have fun yeah, and make it sound like a real podcast. And this could have actually worked. But you're right. The problem is that it's kind of stilted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, stilted's a good word. You know, it always feels like, yeah, they're just reading from a script. And it gets to, like, where, like, oh, there's this crazy conspiracy going on behind it. And then eventually it all ends up with, like, strangely an end-of-the-world scenario. Like, I mean, not fictionally, like, in the sense of the... listening to it happen, like the end of the world happens during their podcast. And what? (laughs) Yeah. Like as related to sex madness. I mean, it's a cool idea what they came up with. It just never really works. I mean, it's certainly a better way to watch this movie than just watching this movie. Although you do get the option to just watch this movie. Yeah. But who would do that? I have no idea. Like, why would you choose to do that? It's not good at all. Um, but it's, I mean, like I said, it's an entertaining idea and this is the first time I've ever seen anybody do anything like this. So they're trying to evolve like the medium of film, like comedy commentary stuff. And I appreciate that. It just doesn't quite work. Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, Zabrecki is, is the, the primary person here because there's also a short with him here, uh, where he does a seance, that also is kind of silly and doesn't really work. Um, there is a, a trailer for another one that Kino has put out, Director's Commentary, Dr- Terror of Frankenstein, which is also sort of a comedy commentary out there. I've not seen that one, so I cannot, com- cannot comment on it. There's an audio commentary on this. Why would you watch a commentary on a commentary-based movie? But it's there by the director and the co-writer. Uh, which neither one of which are either one of these two guys. So what? <laughs> and then, like you said, there's the sex madness, the original, it's such a odd thing to even exist. Right. Yeah, I think so. It, I, I, I don't know if it's a way of dressing up a sex madness release. Um, cause I feel like, you know, Kino or something, something weird video, some of these companies that do release some of these, like, uh, you know, old timey social issue movies. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is like kind of a commercial thing of like, how can we spice these up? I don't know if, I don't know what the origins are of this particular project. I do know, however, in kind of looking around online, cause I kind of want, I, I, while I was watching it, it just wasn't clicking with me and I kind of wanted to do a sanity check and, uh, and I'm apparently in the minority. You are, might be as well. It seems like everybody else found this much more entertaining and way, way funnier. But yeah, I, I just was like, okay, more power to you. So, I mean, for the listeners, it, it might be a case of it just doesn't align to my personal tastes. I don't yeah. really know, but it certainly seemed like the response online was way more positive than the way I felt when I was watching it. I'm very positive with the attempt to try and do something new with this type of comedy, with commentaries for movies. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. This just was, was not the way to do it. Yeah. And it didn't quite work. Uh, so we're going to move on to our next one, which is also a very bizarre comedy that was... Um, Geez, a, a, a strange thing for Hollywood to even choose to do at all, which is the film Rhinoceros from 1974, uh, which is based on a play that was actually moderately successful, very well respected. Uh, uh, at the time, they were describing it as absurdist theater, yeah, which is was a very new idea at that time. 
Uh, Gene Wilder plays a guy who is our part- protagonist. He's a very simple guy, works as an office, as a clerk, and he is watching the world end. But it's ending in the weirdest way possible. Everyone is slowly turning into rhinoceroses. Yeah. Like they're just mutating into rhinoceroses and never on camera, mind you. Yeah. It's not, it's 1974. We're not going to see people transform into rhinoceroses. And he is not dealing with it well. And his best friend, uh, Zero Mistel, mm-hmm. uh, is like, has a really astonishingly series of great scenes early on in this film where you're like, oh my God, Zero Mistel, he was such a treasure. Holy shit. Where he was like the, his neighbor who's just like bigger than life. Uh, he's in love with the girl he works with, played by the lovely, al- albeit, uh, cross-eyed Karen Black. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, it's just a thing about watching them come to terms with the fact that the world is ending and everyone's turning into rhinoceroses, which is super surreal for a wide-release film starring a major movie star at this time. But it's all not really about that. The original play was talking about people refusing to admit that shit was going bad in Hitler's journey. It was the rise of the Iron Cross. Yeah. And the playwright was seeing his friends and people who he thought were totally sane people suddenly align themselves to politics that he found just ghastly. And one by one, he found himself surrounded by others. Which is Uh, one of the reasons why it's so well regarded, that original mm -hmm. play. I mean, and I could see someone very, it would have to be exactly the right person remaking this and doing this in a way today with what's going on with Trump and doing like, wow, there's a way to make this great again. The problem with this movie is that Hollywood backed away from the bigger metaphor there, the serious and just wanted to make a wacky Gene Wilder comedy. And like, what if it's just about like more of a hippie thing? People who refuse to fit in, who want to be more counterculture. And you're like, yeah, there's no resonance here at all. Yeah. It's that's the problem is that the metaphor and this is completely absurd. I mean, it's surreal. Like there's no metaphor that means anything that's makes it worth being the surreal for. But all that being said, I found this very entertaining nonetheless. And I don't, I don't think you felt the same way. I think it's a fascinating oddity. I think it's worth seeking out to, to, see for yourself because there is not really anything like it just from a film enjoyment level. I, I liked the opening diner scene pretty well. Um, I found that it kind of like, um, kind of played the same note for a really, really, really long time. It did, which made the movie feel much, much longer than it probably should have. Um, I mean, it's easier to do that when you have Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder as your two yeah. main characters for the first act. Yeah, but I think it starts, because of that, I think it starts at kind of a 10, and then I think that it stays at that level of volume for pretty much its entire time without much sort of like rising action, falling action. It kind of like opens with a blast, and then when you're sort of still in that, <laughs> like, you're still in that like kind of manic state an hour and a half later into the movie, it's sort of like, all right, th- like this should have some tonal shifts and ups and downs right. that I wasn't necessarily, I-, I didn't feel like I was necessarily getting. It felt really, really long. 
Um, but it's weird and it's fascinating. Uh, so although this is, this is a, one of those rare films that like, yeah, I didn't like it. There's actually a few today that are like this where it's like, I didn't like it, but it may just not be my thing. Hmm. And Rhinoceros, I feel like I'm glad that I watched it in a weird way. Um, There's nothing else that exists like it. Yeah. Like, especially in the 70s, I mean, which was experimenting with surreal filmmaking. It was experimenting with, like, political movies and hippie films, but nothing congealed into this weird question mark of a movie like this. I'm glad that I watched it. I was really receptive to loving it and didn't come away loving it, so... Uh, th- my favorite remake of this play is called Zombie Strippers. I've not, I've not seen that. You know I, what I'm talking about, though, right? I know the movie, but I just dismissed it. Yeah, it's actually hand, very so. funny. Uh, I liked it quite a bit. I mean, but I'm a huge horror fan, and like, if you can make a Z grade horror and then it's super fun to watch, I'm like a champion of it. I'm just yeah. like, yeah. And it's like, it's genuinely like this. It's really surreal and. F- Fucking, there's all these moments you're like, what is happening? This is awesome. But filled with gore and tits. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. Zombie strippers with, I think, Jenna Jameson? Is that who was the star of that one, I yeah, think? Yeah, sounds right. Yeah, uh, is uh, a another take on the same idea. Where it's like, same idea. Everyone, like, is instead of turning into rhinoceroses, they're turning into zombies. Weird, weird stuff. So this from Kino, uh, there's an interview with the director, Tom O'Horgan, conducted in 2002. Uh, There's an interview with Edie Landau, who uh, plays, um, who is uh, the widow Edie Lado, which is the producers of the American Film Theater, uh, who was involved seriously with putting this on as a theatrical version. Yeah, there was a lot of interesting stuff there historically that I liked in the special features about how there was essentially a production company that was trying to bring all the acclaimed plays of the time to the big screen. And there's a, like a crap load of trailers on the disc as well. That oh, were yeah. all the, and I actually, I actually ended up watching almost every single one of those trailers uh, for all those, you know, famous plays that were brought to life in the seventies, which is really interesting. There's this whole weird field of film where, this period where they were trying to adapt into wide release movies, bizarre little plays that th- this would never happen today. Like nobody would do this. Not yeah. unless they found some way to do a zombie stripper. It, But like, you know what I'm saying? Where it's like right. odd little plays, little tiny indie plays. Nowadays it's like the, the industry is redirected completely from that theater. Like uh, off, off Broadway is it, it's its own thing. It's not coming to Hollywood. Yeah. But this was that point where, like, this is cool, and it's got we've got like, this counterculture and all that. And it's kind of a fascinating period in film, and I think there's very few examples where it became super interesting. But, um, hey, I'm sad you didn't get to see The Nightcomers, which is on my next uh, uh, one with Aaron, which is the sequel to Turn of the Screw. Uh, written and directed by really great people and starling, starring Marlon Brando. Yeah. I was like... How was this a thing? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Prequel to Turn of the Screw. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Yeah, I mean either. <laughs> it's like this is a thing I never even fucking heard of. It's like one of the most famous horror stories of all time. And there was a prequel with Marlon Brando. I love the seventies. Holy shit. Crazy shit like that happening. Anyway, it's not like it's great, but I'm just saying it's crazy that it, that even yeah, yeah. exists. 
All right, the next one is all about Lily Chow Chow. Now, this is a movie that's been on my radar for a while. I follow a lot of indie film stuff. This is one of those movies. It came out in 2001, Japanese movie, that everyone always compares other things to. I can't count how many times I'm reading reviews of something and they compare it to All About Lily Chow Chow. And I'm like, what the fuck is All About Lily Chow Chow? Never heard of this. Never. Like, before that, like, where do I see this thing? What this, and the way they describe it is like, you can't describe it. You know what I mean? The critics who love it, they're like, there's no, you just have to experience it for yourself like the Matrix. Okay. Except we watched this very, very long-ass 146-minute film, which follows two Japanese boys <laughs> from the start of junior middle school, going through the eighth grade, uh, where they're fans of this musician, yeah. and there's like Lily Chow Chow, who's not really a character in the film. They interact on the message boards. There's lots of like kind of like chatting interstitials that take place in the film. Yeah. There's a lot of like, yeah, there's a lot of, I suspect in 2001, very new, uh, mixing in like that communication of technology and the way kids were communicating in Japan at that point into the actual way they were shooting the film. Um, the kid who's the most, the sympathetic protagonist of, at one point turns into the bully and antagonist of the film, which is very, very odd. It's an odd little film, and I'm not going to say it's not pretty. It's really pretty. But it's 146 minutes of very slow moving. Not a lot happens. Pop star adjacent worship what? I don't know. John, what do you think? What's going I, on here? I could not relate to this movie in any way whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> uh, I I could not relate to it, neither on a fandom level in regards to, like, oh, when I was young, there were bands I liked, and I could see myself in these characters, nor on a cultural level of just typical Japanese school life. I could... I had. I felt like I had no particular... A uh, comfortable entry point to sort of be welcomed into the world of this movie. And it is a very slice of life thing. It is a very fly on the wall. Hey, you know, hang out with these kids for two and a half hours. And when you can't relate to anything, it makes it interminable. That's uh, part of it is that it's impossible to relate to these kids. And that's, we're speaking, of course, like ethnographically, is that a word? I think it is. Yeah, I think like, so. It's very hard for us to relate to Japanese teenagers in, in the, in 2001 and say like, I don't, I don't know what well, we're, this was different from what we were experiencing. Even, even, yeah. And even if I'm going to, even if I'm considering music as the entry point there and not necessarily like Japanese culture, it still is a deal of like, I don't think I've never been that obsessive about really anything. So, uh, so it was even difficult for me. Not to even swamp come thing? along there. No, not even swamp thing. I I'm gonna I'm gonna call you to task on that one. You posted literally a random swamp thing image every day for like two weeks now. But I'm also prepared that if the show sucks, I'm I'll be perfectly fine. You'll be like, I didn't tell you it was gonna be good. I just I, told I, you I, I exactly, wanted to see it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I watch a lot of Asian films. Like, I love Asian cinema, and I love even Asian art cinema. And this is one that, if it had been a full hour shorter, I could have actually been with it. There's moments that are, like, 
kind of Donnie Darko adjacent. You know what I mean? Not to that level of abstractness, maybe, but like, there's some interesting stuff visually going on here. There's some interesting stuff musically going on yeah. here. And they really tried to promote this much like Donnie Darko when it came out as a event online. Like, uh, like, which is a very early time to be doing that. Like, there was a, a lot of like, trying to convince people that Lily Chow Chow was a real musician and that this, these events really happened and things like this is a real film and like a, based on real stuff that happened. That's cool. And I respect that, 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 that was a thing that is, I'm the same way with the Blair Witch Project. I'm like, that doesn't make that movie a good movie, but I really respect the shit out of the marketing people. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, that's not a good movie. Blair Witch Project. I fucking hate the Blair Witch Project, dude. I hate that movie so much. It's such garbage. Do you like the new one? I did. I'm the one guy in the whole world that hates the original and likes the new one. <laughs> yeah. I'm also friends with the guys who did the new one too, so maybe yeah. that was part of it. I don't know. I was like there. I was there for them. But uh I know people who are gonna see Lily Chow Chow and going to say, You're broken inside. This is beautiful and mesmerizing and I don't know why you didn't think this was great. And cool. More power to him. Because, yeah. again, it, I mean, coming back to this idea of, like, it, it just wasn't for me. I could totally see how somebody else would think it was, like, a gorgeous five-star experience. But mm-hmm. it just wasn't my thing. I just had no connection with these yeah. characters at all. And especially, like I said, that main character, when they switch him over from being this, like, nerdy guy who's, like, you're like, oh man, we're rooting for you to like becoming, basically deciding he's gonna be the bully of the school now and becoming the antagonist of the film. I'm like, who am I? I don't even know at that point who I'm supposed to be rooting for in this movie or, or, or what I'm supposed to be liking about it other than its visual sense. And oh my god, they suddenly switch into in the middle of it doing a fucking, uh, cinema verite thing that goes on for way too long with them going on a trip. I was like, uh, found footage? What? Why is this here? <laughs> yeah, I think that's another thing. It was early in the early in the digital film days as well, and you know, I think most of it is shot digitally, which has also yeah. probably got it a lot of attention at the time. Uh, but it is considered by many to be a classic, and I, I, if you if you're one of those people, you're like indie film, a, Asian indie film. This is one of my things. This is the movie you should probably see and gauge for yourself how you feel about it because there's a lot of people who hold this up as an all-time classic. It just didn't really connect with me or John. Uh, there's a making of featurette and an essay by Stephen Kremen, who was the deputy director, and there's a booklet that comes with it with the essay by said uh, Stephen Kremen as well. Uh, next up is Never Ever. Who boy. Fucking French, dude. I'm just saying. Yeah, so there's this French womanizing filmmaker, and he meets not a dancer, but a body movement artist. Not a dancer. <laughs> That's a very, thing, apparently. Very specific. A body movement artist. Yeah, Julia they, Roy. They fall in love. Um, he dies in an accident. Spoiler alert. It's actually it had, it's the plot well, they get, of the movie. They get married. Yeah, they, they fall in love and get married. He dies in an accident, and then he kind of, like, his memories sort of, like, haunt her throughout the, the rest yeah, the, of the duration of the film. If you read the back of this box, it sells it like it's an arty French ghost story. It is it is one of those three things. It's two of those three things. Yeah. It's arty, 
It's French. It is not a ghost story. No. <laughs> no, and it's very, uh, it's, it's, to coin a phrase, it's mornography. It's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> who said that? I did just now. Mornography? It's okay. like, yeah, I, as I was watching, I was like, this is like morno. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's like the sadness of losing someone and like the secrets that they left behind. And like, and it's very, very French because the guy's kind of a shithead and he's like 20 years older than the woman. Matthew Amalric, so, uh, who's been in a lot of movies, oh, yeah. he played the bad guy in one of the Bond Quantum films. Quantum of Solace. Quantum yeah. of Solace, yeah. Um, uh, th- this was one that, yeah, it felt so. It's it's funny when you watch a film where you're like, you can't name what film that you think it's like, but it feels like a thousand films you've seen before. Yes, and that's what this was. Where it's personal like, shopper is what it felt like. To I me. feel like I'd seen this movie a hundred times, and yet can't give you an example of anything that's that I. And I'm not seeing personal shopper, which I, I did not care for. I know a lot of people who did, but I was like, "What is wrong with all of you people? This it, is boring." It is exactly what if if I had a cliche of a French film in my mind, and then it became alive. That's what this movie would be. <laughs> yes. Um, so, <laughs> so again, it's not for me. I feel like I feel like there are probably people who would like really appreciate it, but but get, don't get me wrong. Unlike Lily Chow Chow, which I think is. I think Lily Chow Chow is artful and probably connects with people on a very, very deep level in a way that it doesn't with me. This particular movie, uh, and I keep wanting to call it Ever After. Every single time I name, say the name of this movie, I want to call it Ever After. What's it called again? Uh, uh, Never Ever. Never Ever. See, that it's close. Yeah. So this movie, Never Ever, to me, though, is not one where it's like, oh, there are there's people can make like deeper hidden connections to it that maybe I just can't. I feel like this is similar to product in the same way that you love a cheap zombie movie. There are people that just like French films that are yeah. going to dig this. I agree. And it, it's not going to go any deeper than that. It's not going to have any like, oh, personal connect. It's just straight up going to be, if you like a certain type of foreign film, then this might fit the bill. But it's the same as watching like, oh, I like action movies, so I'll watch anything action. But even then, I watch a lot of French, like, foreign films, like, arty foreign films, and there was nothing here that really recommended it. I was like, what are you showing me I haven't seen a hundred times before? In fact, what are you even trying to say? Like, right off the bat, you're like, I have no sympathy for our protagonist. You're a body movement artist? I don't even know what the fuck that is, but I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? It's kind of like uh, you get paid to do Tai Chi. Yeah. Sort of like yeah, you do it, do it in public. And he's like a very famous film director who has left his, I don't know, wife, girlfriend, whatever she was. He, like He had a, he had a girlfriend and he was also uh, stripping his his main actress. So he's kind of a shit. Yeah, he's right? a womanizer. Yeah. And, and you're like he dies, you're like, who gives a fuck? And then the bulk of the movie is her and even moping in, around their house. And even and then before he dies, there, he like he has sex with her. He talks about her body all the time, and then he dies. And I'm like, you don't really get like. There's not some deep insight to his character, it, other than like he really likes to bone this younger woman that he met. Right, and he likes her ass because he mentions no, that. I mean, like, like you've got this great actor who is doing his best to bring something to this, and he's fascinating to watch, but he's not doing anything. Yeah. You know? Uh, and this is actually based on a novel, uh, or I'm sorry, a novel, yeah, from uh, New York uh, called The Bo- uh, Body Artist, 
originally set in. So it was like a French adaptation of an English speaking thing. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a fan. I was kind of mad at the end of this one. Like that was a complete and utter waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wow, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I'm literally teaming this up with this one entirely because they both are ostensibly ghost-related, but our next one is John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars, which mm-hmm. I have since... I've re- I've talked about before on De- our a horror show, Deliberations of Doom, where we did a John Carpenter episode. Uh, where I was like, what was the theme? Two of our... Uh, John Carpenter. John Carpenter, yeah. yeah. And two of our cohorts defend the shit out of this movie, Oy. and the rest of us were like, you're... Oy. You have brain damage. This movie is fucking terrible. It's... I think this is worse than The Ward by a sizable margin. I think the only way to enjoy Ghost of Mars is in a sort of, like, cynical, funny way of what this was supposed to be, which was that it was supposed to be the third Escape from New York movie with Snake Plissken, and then after Escape from L.A. was a total bomb, they were like, maybe not, let's do that. And when you realize that Ice Cube in this movie was supposed to be Snake Plissken originally... It kind of creates a level of entertainment. What's his name is like Obliviation Jones or something. Like, what's his character's name? <laughs> it's uh, James Desolation Williams. Oh, Desolation Williams. But I'm it. writing that down. Uh, Desolation for my own Williams script. is a sing- lead singer of CNC Music Factory. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh, if you guys have never seen this, and it's one of those movies that's bad on the sort of like kind of fun bad way but it's just if it was anybody but John Carpenter I would be more like yeah it's fun but it's like it's John Carpenter and this is just a shame that this is as bad as it is like it's okay for on that level Mm, but mm -hmm. it's uh, second half of the 22nd century Mars has been largely terraformed although you still tend to have to off and on wear breathers when you're on it um and so Natasha Henstridge coming off of uh, Species, which was a big hit. A long, but there's a huge gap of time. Is there really that there's big of a gap of time? five years between Species okay. and this movie. I saw so. Species 2 had already come out at this point, well, I yeah, assume. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that was that one. She was chasing that dragon of trying to think she might be a real star, and she never really became one. She's a last-minute replacement for Courtney Love. Yes, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. So she is a cop uh, that has been sent to this remote mining outpost to transport a prisoner, Ice Cube. Uh, they get there with her team. They find everybody is missing. It's just a, a dead town. They discovered they had found this underground doorway created by an ancient Martian civilization. When they opened it, it created, quote, ghosts. Which came out and started possessing people. So basically, it's the evil dead mixed with Escape from New York movie. Yeah. Yeah. Which sounds amazing, right? But no. No. And for many, many reasons, despite the fact that it's got a pretty decent fucking cast. Jason Statham is kind of is Jericho Butler. Yeah, it's which weird. I'm changing my name legally too. You're gonna but, be Jericho Butler. Yeah. yeah, it's a weird mix of people like up and down the ladder. It's one of those kind of movies where it's like you, it, it's that convergence of oh, this person is like they're on their way up in their career, and this person is sort of like what what am I doing right now in their <laughs> career? Like ostensibly on the way down. Yes, I mean like Pam Greer, who was like still trying to figure out at this point. I had had uh, she been in the Tarantino film at this yeah, point? Yeah, and it was a little after it was a little after her late nineties resurgence. So she's kind of on the downswing here, going like, "Well, what's next?" You know, because she did have that that latter half of the nineties resurgence. 
Uh, but Joanna Cassidy, who uh, played Zora and Blade Runner, has a role in this. Like, there's a lot of almost everyone in this. You're like, I've seen them in another very famous genre film. You know what I mean? Like in a yeah. small role, but still, it's it's a great premise that goes that that's just not fun to watch. Really, it's, it's just so so dumb. I think Carpenter feels like if. He feels so disinterested in the way that the movie looks or comes across or anything. And I think that's a problem is like, we've seen Carpenter make genre movies before and we know that there's like an understanding of just like the language of things, like mm-hmm. how movies should look. This is so flat and so boring. That's exactly it. It's and flat. so disinterested. Like, it just looks and, like a set. And some of it is time. a matter of like, I get that it's low budget, but like, even the way stuff is lit and framed, is just like as no imagination, no motivation, no artistic qualities in it whatsoever. And like the things that I appreciate about it, there's little bits of world building in the dialogue. Like the fact yeah. that it's like they hint at the fact that it's a matriarchy. Yeah. Um, instead of it's like the patriarchy has been abolished and like yeah. everything's And now run. women are in charge. Yeah. There's little things in the dialogue that hint at like some really cool world building that's never really expanded upon. And, and it ends up just being junk. Like, it... It feels, goes nowhere. It, it it feels like a director who doesn't give a shit. And there's a lot of scenes, like... So there's a lot of characters in this. Yeah. Like, a lot of, like, soldiers that are building up, and then prisoners and people in the town who end up showing up and stuff. So they're building a thing that basically is just body count. But almost every kill scene in this is so, like, and who cares? Yeah. Like, it's all about, like, this will look cool. And it doesn't really, and you never really cared about that character in the first place, so who gives a shit? Like, a lot of, like, the movie stopping to show you a kill scene, the, yeah. uh, the character is it, exactly in the center of the frame to see their kill scene. Was Oh, now their arm's gone. Oh, now their head flew off. And it's just so calculated and whatever. Like, And it's a shame because I actually like Ice Cube in the role. Yeah. I'm like, I would watch a movie with him in a very similar part doing this sort of thing. He's kind of fun to watch. And I like his, like, his cohorts, his buddies who come up, like, with him, like, to work with him, who unfortunately get killed relatively quickly. But Natasha Henstridge has always been a boring actress. And she's kind of boring here as well. And almost everybody else is just, they're plowing through this nonsense dialogue. And there's hints of, like, him trying to build something bigger that would be more interesting, but it doesn't come to anything. And there's a guy who's basically Marilyn Manson, who's the villain and who doesn't do anything but scowl at the camera. I mean, the guy doesn't even get a speech. Why wouldn't you give that guy a speech? Right? Like that guy should have a big moment where he goes like, Hey, uh, the hell and I'm taking your souls or something. And like, no, he just scowls at the camera and okay. I guess he's our villain because he has the most amount of facial piercings. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a far cry from Starman or The Thing. Again, movies that look, if you watch any given second of it, look like actual movies. This thing, literally to me, in retrospect, like watching it now, I'm like, this. I feel like I'm watching a CD-ROM game's cutscenes yes. all back to back to back to create a film. It's the last gasp of the late career of John Carpenter as a filmmaker where he had already even said 
he had lost his passion at this, like, like publicly said, I don't even know if I want to keep making films. And clearly he just didn't have the passion here yeah. anymore. Uh, there, but this Mill Creek, which normally puts out, has, I, I keep saying this, they put out Bear Brown's release, but it's more the and best more version of this, more and more they're putting out new stuff. And this is in fact the best looking version that exists. And there's even supplemental material here that Sony originally released in 2009, but usually they don't even bother doing that, including that stuff. So there's the commentary with, with Carpenter and Henstridge. There's a video diary for 17 minutes, Red Desert Nights. There's a thing about seven minutes on the score. There's uh, seven minutes on the special effects. That's, uh, Mill Creek is clearly trying to slowly, like, go, well, maybe we're going to try and get a little more respectful than this, respectable than the stuff that just shows up in the Walmart discount bin. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. We'll see. Another film with Mars in the title, but much better than this, is The Ghost, The Eyes of Laura Mars. The prequel. I Right. I have always wanted to see this movie. I was so excited for multiple reasons. One, another connection to Ghost of Mars. This was the uh, the first film that John Carpenter wrote that ever mm-hmm. got produced. It and was, apparently the film that got Ker- Irving Kirshner the Empire Strikes Back job. Yes. Although this movie came out after John Carpenter movies got made. Yeah. It was the first money he ever got for one of his scripts. Oh, cool. Right here. Uh, it was a spec script called Eyes. But... uh I, the main reason I was into this, you're going to laugh, because I had a Mad Magazine that had a parody of this, yeah. and I read it like 80, 100, 150 times when I was a kid, never got around to seeing the movie, but I knew it, the parody, back and forth. I was like, someday I'm going to watch Eyes of Lower Mars when I'm old enough to watch that many titties on screen, because uh, there are a lot of titties on screen in Eyes of Lower Mars. Uh, this was 1978, so what are you going to do? Uh, this was directed by Irvin Kirshner, who of course went on to do any number of other very respectful films. Faye Dunaway plays a very famous fashion photographer who has changed her career recently to specialize in very violent shots of like, like beautiful people who have been killed horribly, you know? And it's like, okay, this is the talk of the town. Everyone's like, is this art? Is it pornography? What is this? And, and based on the work of a real artist, Helmut Newton, who actually provided a lot of the photos in the film. So during this controversy about whether or not they glorify violence and are demeaning to women, she starts seeing whenever she looks into her camera things through the viewpoint of an actual killer that's going around and killing people that are in her life, uh, various m- models, agents, what have you. She... Uh, has a connection with Tommy Lee Jones, plays John Neville, who's the lieutenant in charge of the case, who admitted at first is like, I don't believe this at all, but then starts to actually believe her, and then they start to actually have a romantic relationship in a way that probably any other film would address as, yeah, this is not a thing that should happen <laughs> yeah. in any sort of way. Uh, but it's a cool little... Very weirdly Brian De Palma esque story. It's American Giallo. When it opened with a oh, totally American When it Giallo. opened with a POV shot of a gloved killer's hand like picking up a knife and then like you know, going and killing, I was like, Oh, a carpenter must have been hitting like the movies that were out at the time, the horror the you know, the horror films, the kind of proto slashers that were out at the time. Sure. And and you could certainly see that influence on this particular script. There aren't a lot of I think there's a lot of movies that kind of get called Giallo in 
but having come off of watching a, a bunch of these type of movies for Digital Noise, it's it was very obvious that if this movie would have been in Italian, it would have been the exact same movie. Like it would have. Oh, complete. You know what I mean? It, it was it was that it was that kind of movie that was being made at that time. Um, I think there's really interesting character actors that pop up in it, including uh, Rene Auberjonois, who a lot of people know as you know from Star Trek or from. His many roles in voice acting, and yeah. then um, Raul Julia. Raul Julia has an interesting <laughs> has an interesting turn in it as the well as ex boyfriend uh, Brad Brad Dorf. Um, I love Brad. Dorf yeah, so much, man. It's a whodunit. They set up a lot of red herrings and a lot of like uh, little. There's a lot of little background players who you think might um, be. The killer to varying degrees. Like, for instance, there's some that are full on characters like Raul Julia or Rene Arbrissonois. There's others that are like the, uh, the little person, uh, who's friends with her that in some scenes he's just there standing like it, on the set in the background and you're like, oh, it's the little person from the party at the beginning of the movie. Right. And it's like little red herring stuff to like make you go, oh, he's probably the killer. He's probably the killer. Like all the way through the movie, there's all this little like, oh, I bet it's him. It's, it's so on point with the way Giallo film mystery like killer stuff goes, even though like, cause we've watched so many. Yeah. I think I was like immediately like, Oh, well, it's clearly this person because I know how Giallo stuff thinks. And this is what that is. And this is obviously an American It was Giallo. a Mad Magazine that spoiled it for you. Well, I can't. Okay, probably. <laughs> but that being said, I can't remember the details of it. I mean, the yeah. last time I read it, I was probably 10. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I don't really. I just remember that I did, you know. But still, you're like, yeah, I I can see where this is going, but who cares? This is fun. It's 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 graphic and it's weird and it's seventies as fuck and it's so fucking disco. Yeah, and it's kind. Of, it's one of those movies you want to show other people and go like, "What do you think of this?" I I probably wasn't as interested in it as the romance began to further the movie kind of like distance itself a little bit. I so I really liked the first half of it more than the second half, but I liked it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not half bad. It's not as maybe as great as I was hoping it to be. And it's certainly I never really saw the John Carpenter thing because John Carpenter was never really known for incorporating Giallo stuff into it. And movies. I didn't know. I had. I mean, I've heard of this movie. It's, yeah. it's one that you know. I, I'm assuming it was a modest hit when it came out because it it's yeah. not like it's it's not like people are still you know pouring over it today, but. It's a title that comes up every now and then. I mean, it was, and I had no idea John Carpenter even wrote it. Like, I, I literally had no idea. It was mixed reviews when it came out, yeah. but I think it it did pretty good. It had a very successful soundtrack that was released, and as by the guy who did Empire Strikes Back. So you know, yeah. I mean, shit. Doesn't that make you want to see it alone? Uh, the only extra feature here is a audio commentary by the director. But I mean. It's a film I can see myself going back through and watching with it because it's just an oddity. There aren't a lot of American straight up Giallo films. Who, whose release is that? Uh, this I know it was a studio back in the day, but I don't know if somebody else oh, picked it up for the catalog release. You, you mean like who, like who released the actual Blu-ray? Who's putting out the Blu-ray? Uh, I want to say this is Kino Luber, but no, this is Mill Creek. Okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah. So this next one is uh. My fondest dream of the title for what I wish I could find a way to do, which is never grow old. Ah, uh, I do not feel the same. 
Do I wish I could never grow old? Like stay young forever? Hmm. I wish I could never grow fat. I wish that was never gain weight would be the movie title for for me. I feel like I could accomplish that easier than never growing old. You know, yeah. I mean, I tried really hard to stay out of the sun my whole life because the sun, it's not good. And, and I feel like I look younger than I actually am. Yeah. You know, but um, I, you know, I've got deep, dark, painful secrets that reveal to myself how old I am inside my own body and awareness. So, yeah. uh, but this movie has really nothing to do with any of that. Um, that's not what we're talking about. This is a Western Starring Emile Hirsch. Well, I say starring Emile Hirsch, although, let's face it, John Cusack is really the star of this film because he's the only truly interesting thing in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, <clears throat> Emile Hirsch plays a guy who is, he runs the, uh, what, what do he's you Undertaker. Call he's the Undertaker. And a little small, small yeah, a little small, like, one-horse town. He's the Undertaker. And uh, it's a little sleepy town where there's like no vices. Uh, it's religious, it's a, yeah. It's a religious enough to the point that like you know there's no drinking allowed and that sort of thing. And these outlaws roll in. Uh, John Cusack sort of being the leader of them roll into town looking for a guy, and then just decide to buy the saloon and set up camp there. Right. And this little place, which had never experienced any particular friction or violence, suddenly finds itself immersed in uh, sin and, and evil and and violence. Right. A town that arguably was religious, but the I think, I would argue, interestingly, mm-hmm. it, it argues that, like, that wasn't good either. Yeah. That what they had, but that sort of, like, a prohibition sort of level of, like, no alcohol, no sex, no violence, no, like, we're just a very religious town. Uh, and then Cusack comes in with his crew and is like, yeah, what are you guys going to do? What are you going to do about it? Yeah. We're here. And they act very, like, Cusack is very, so matter-of-fact about it all, just like, yeah, I'm just, I'm not breaking any laws. I'm just doing, you know, I mean, y- you guys... I'm just doing my thing, man. Like, this is what needs to be done. I bought this. It's legal. Like, what, are you going to stop me? What law is on your side to say that I cannot reopen this bordello and bar? You you don't have a legal ground to stand on other than the fact that everybody in the town had previously bowed under to the preacher in the town Mm. and the pressure from him. But Emil Hirsch and his family were more sort of like, we're like, they're Irish. They're like... We're not, this isn't our fight. We just want to make a living, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But John Cusack, for whatever reason, kind of latches onto Emil Hirsch. Like, we're friends, right? Aren't we buddies? And he's clearly like this, he's not like, he's a psychopath, but in, uh, Cusack, but in such a weirdly arbitrary sort of occasional way. I really genuinely enjoyed Cusack's performance in this, which is the first time I can say that for a Cusack performance in quite some time. And it's odd how often the movie tries to shoot him in shadow, and maybe that was intentional on Cusack's request because he's clearly getting visibly a lot older. <laughs> you know, maybe he's insecure about that. Oddly, in your stack for next week is another, uh, for the next show is another Cusack film called Money for Nothing. Yeah. Yeah, which I don't know if you've ever seen, but. 
Oh, the '90s movie. Yeah, yeah, I have Rosie Perez. I yeah, think, right? yeah, 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 yeah. It's been years, but I've seen it. Yeah, a uh, guy steals a bunch of like. Uh, it doesn't money. even steal. It falls off the back of a truck. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. It. yeah, yeah, I've seen it. It's been a while. But this is a movie that I, I kind of respect and like, but didn't enjoy watching. I had um, really, really low expectations. This coming from Lionsgate. Emil Hirsch, I know, had been, uh, he's got himself in a little bit of career trouble for, I think he assaulted somebody at Sundance a couple Is years ago. Is that what happened? Yeah. Because he felt like he was going to be the next big thing for a while. Yeah, he he had some substance abuse problems and I think assaulted somebody at Sundance in full view of like the public and the press and everybody else. And so that, that cooled his career way down. And John Cusack seems to, for whatever reason, make those kind of like, tax shelter movies where he plays like Chinese warlords and shit like that, where you're like, what the hell happened to your career? Yeah. And so I had really, really low expectations. And the fact that just seconds into it, it had artful cinematography. I was like, it's well shot. Oh crap. This is like a legit movie because I, I thought it was going to be just like stinking junk. And it's sort of like, you honestly, know, it's, it's honestly, very- this is one of those movies that I was feeling the same way about mm-hmm. it. And I was like, I'm going to start watching this. And if this is just unbelievable garbage, I'm just not even going to send it to John. I'll be like, I'll talk about it and I won't even make you watch it. But I went the same thing. I was like, this is a relatively well-made yeah. film overall. I just had a hard time connecting with it as much as they wanted me to. Yeah, it is a, it is a... You know, we've talked a few times on the show about movies that are sort of just like, you know, if you like westerns, here's one. Um, (laughs) It's not. It's not like it's got anything. Our huge recommendation. Yeah, it's a western. It's it's not like it has anything again that you haven't seen before, other than John Cusack, kind of like sitting in his sort of beefier body and kind of like conveying a sense of his soft spoken just voice displaying kind of like a sinister vibe and like the movie kind of having overall kind of a general sense of dread throughout it. Um, you know, a lot of the scenes are lit by like torchlight and fire. Yeah. It's a, it's a muddy, it feels authentic. Um, I very out there. Yeah. I think all around this is, this is a pretty well made, not exceptional movie. It is a, it is a, uh, but it's it's better than you would think it is if you're flipping around VOD, uh, you know, or you see it on a shelf somewhere, and you're like, "What the hell is this?" I can guarantee you, it's probably better than what you think it is. Yeah. E- even then, compared to the greatest westerns, you know, it's fine. It's not on the list. Yeah, it's not on the list. It's yeah, it's not on the list at all. But it's a damn sight better than um, than expectations, and and it almost makes you wonder, like. I wonder what the original sort of intent for this was. Like, did they... uh, Lionsgate has a tendency to either... Lionsgate has a tendency to exploit, um, whether that means they're making cheap junk or they're they're aiming for blockbuster status. They don't tend to make, like, kind of of middle-of-the-road... Uh, like artfully considered like adult dramas, which yeah. is essentially what this is, and I, I, it feels We're like trying an, to be, yeah, and it feels like an anomaly for a Lionsgate product. And I was kind of curious, like, where would this have fit in? Like, what could it have played film festivals? You know, it's certainly good enough. It, it 
couldn't have played theaters because it's too it's not appealing enough. No. It doesn't have the star yeah. power and anymore. So, so, in a way, I kind of feel like I kind of want to go to bat for this just a little bit in regards to I really feel like the audience who would like this, it's just going to get lost. And so, I, you know, as much as I'm not necessarily giving it like a huge glowing recommendation on the show, I do think that it's it's certainly better than it looks. Better than average might be too hard of a sell. It's, it, you know. It has moments that are genuinely really cool. I feel like the conclusion of this film was kind of badass. Yeah. Where I went, okay, it took us a while to get here, but like watching Emil Hirsch man up, which is basically the plot, like arc of this film. Like, when are you going to man up and do your thing? When are you going to, when are you going to confront evil? And watching John Cusack, like, Basically playing a very John Cusack type character, but only if he was bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's being very charismatic. He's, it felt like these scenes, they let him riff, mm-hmm. quite frankly. I don't know if that's true or not, but it felt like they were letting Cusack just riff. And you're like, no, just have fun with it. And it is kind of fun to watch these scenes. He is the most appealing character in the film, despite being like, evil but not mustache twirling evil he's like i know how the system works and i'm gonna take advantage of it evil yeah i had a good time with parts of it but overall at the end i was like i'm not gonna remember this film in a year but people who really are like westerns are their thing this is one that's worth totally worth checking out <laughs> you know this, i know faint praise and well, all that. you know what this movie is i don't know if this ever happens to you your parents will watch something on cable or on Netflix and then they'll recommend it to you and it'll be something you've never heard of but with stars you know. Yeah. And they'll be like, you know, I watched that movie the other day. What was that Western we watched with Doc Cusack? That was pretty good. That was, uh, that was yeah. Never Grow Old. Yeah, Never Grow Old. No, that bad. Was yeah. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? Like, I've never heard of this movie this in my life. This is that movie. This is right. that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there are 20 minute, uh, uh, EPK, uh, with interviews and stuff called Dire Consequences and making a, making never grow, grow old here. If you want to own a physical copy of this, but other than that, that's it. Um, I do, I genuinely think Western, modern Western fans, this is one that's worth checking out. It does, it deserves an audience. It does. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I feel the same way about, for zombie fans about Redcon 1, uh, which yeah. is, I, I give it full credit for trying. It's, it is trying. I really think they were trying hard yeah. to make a film that was not just a, you know, uh, uh, an asylum movie. They were like, no, we're really into this epic pictures, which we keep talking about epic pictures movies and we're always say the same thing. It's not like you guys didn't try. It's just, it's so low budget. And it never really comes together. And it's just this unremarkable, super low budget, why did anyone pick this up film? And this feels like yet another one of those. You know, we reviewed, what was it? Uh, the one about the uh, black something with the... the uh, black Sight? Is yeah, that, Black Sight. Same company releasing that. And you're like, this feels like the, that same type of thing. Or the one with the... Uh, the zombies, the Evil Dead-ish type thing, the zombies at a party. A book of monsters. Yeah, same company. And you're like, same shit with Redcon 1, where you're like, it's it's not like you're not trying. We get that you're putting the effort in, 
but the budget is so low. And this one's probably got a considerably higher budget. I was going to say this one feels like ones. it has a this one feels like it has a higher budget than the than the others. But it's trying to do something different. It just doesn't really succeed. The idea here is there's these. It's a zombie outbreak, mass zombie outbreak. Uh, zombies here have certain human traits. They can fight back. They can use weapons, what have you. Very sort of a post-land of the dead, if you will, if you're going with the Romero example, um, in Britain. And these military crew are, have been dropped in and sent to specifically try and capture a scientist that the the powers that be have decided might actually have some answers as to a cure for all of this. And that's essentially the plot of the movie. At some point, a child comes into it, of course, and there's, like, inexplicable moments where people do things. There was the one moment where the, 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 the people who you didn't even realize were a couple until suddenly they were... They're like the ones like I've been infected. Great, let's fuck. I'll be infected too. What? What was that? <laughs> yeah, it's very. I found it very video gamey. It's totally it, 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 video game. Something about it felt very like inspired by video games. Uh, it's it's the gore is decent. Yeah, the, the, everything the, about it. I think the I think the general vibe of the production is like. You know, it looks, I think any given second of it, it looks, it certainly looks professional enough. Mm-hmm. I think if you watch it for longer than any given second, you realize that, you know, it's, there, it doesn't offer anything new. Um, I didn't find that it really offered anything new. I think if you're a pretty forgiving zombie movie fan and you do watch every single thing that's zombie and that's just your thing, this is probably, uh, probably a, a slightly better than most that come down the pipe. But it's not. Uh, you've seen this. It's not. I mean, this if this good. had come out decades ago, we would have gone. This is groundbreaking. And now it's like there's been 300 zombie films since then. You're like, this feels like a movie version of Zed Town. Yeah, you know the 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 go play live and shoot zombies with Nerf darts thing. You're like, okay. Yeah, it's it is a. Uh, it is, it's, it defined, there's a fine line between, like, bad and... It's not <laughs> terrible. Right, but saying that makes it also sound good. Well, this is like, I'm going to have to call this episode Damning with Faint Praise, because this is what we're doing it, over this and over one, again. Yeah, well, this one's a tough one, because, again, it's like... There's stuff I go, like, you put the effort in, you just had no idea... Why and you I, wanted to make a zombie Right, film. and I think that's the problem with it is, like, you've got all these resources, and they're all on screen. Like, I can see the fact that, like, you had willing actors who, for the most part, are capable. You've got the squibs. You've got the special effects. You've got, you know, everything about it is, like, okay. And then you chose to make, like, a, a very standard like seen it a thousand times zombie movie like basically you chose to to you you made resident evil all over like i it, there's parts of it that remind me of the resident evil franchise yeah. not not like one specific film but like little pieces of it like the uh the zombies using guns reminds me of like the, i think the third one or fourth one 
which is the one directed by Russell Mulcahy. Well, like I said, I thought like, of Land of the Dead, yeah. which is uh, Romero going like in like a bad decision. Oh, zombies have figured out how to yeah. use guns. I was like, everyone in the world went, no, what are you doing? No, yeah. that's a terrible idea. Yeah, I just, you know, it's a shame that it's, it's a shame that all this effort, which is there on the screen, went to create something that is not special in any particular way. I keep hearing people say Cargo is a really interesting zombie film doing something new that's on Netflix. It's also shot cheaply and digitally, but does something new. I've not seen it yet. I don't know if you have yet. Oh, the short film was terrifying. Of? Of Cargo. Oh, was it based on I saw film? I saw the short film either at Fantastic Fest or South By, and the short film was... Somebody has like a baby Bjorn on who's bitten by a zombie and the baby's fine. And the dad is like slowly turning into a zombie while this baby's attached to his body. Ah. And the dread is just like, oh my God. Well, I've heard, I, I Wait, is that know. the is that the one? I don't know because I haven't seen it. But I keep I thought that people was car- saying I thought that was car- cargo is one you should see. And I'm like, okay, well maybe I, I, will. I might be getting it confused. But with I'll the, say Red Cod one. one. It's it's another one of those movies. I don't want to just totally fucking throw it out the window because it's not like they didn't try, but it still goes from the beginning. You had the wrong instincts. You spent the money. You did your best to make a decent movie, but why? <laughs> Based on what? Oh, well, I think we'll see more of these as it, uh, as it comes along. But if no, you do like this sort of thing, and it is super gory. There's a lot of action. In it. Uh, there's a, shit ton of bonus features on this thing. They, like, loaded it up. That weird, rare indie film that, like, is like, yeah, we were so proud of this. We filled it with extras. There's a... If you liked it, there's a ton of bonus features on the Blu-ray for this thing. So, there you go. Uh, let's talk about moving on to our final two films, which I suspect we liked much more than the bulk of what we've talked about here. The Lego Movie 2. Now, I'm very interested to know what you thought about the second part, as it literally is in the title of the Lego Movie 2, because did you like the first one very much? I think the first one's fine. Okay. Do you not think the second one's fine? I think the second one is okay. I'm kind of went there with you. I, I think the second one is, is all right. I, I think I, the I, second one is like a little, there's a little bit of sequelitis, because I think people were really surprised yeah. the first one was decent at all. So I think at this point, like the gimmick of these being decent is gone. Um, I th- I thought it was all right. I, I you know <laughs> the first the first one is the first one I I like fine. I like it fine. I, I love the shit out of the first one. Yeah, I have not really been a big fan of it any of the. And that's the thing with thing. me is like I felt like and I should have loved Lego Batman. Like yeah. I, I'm the audience for that. Well, in a way, I'm not a little child, but <laughs> I, I think. But on I, another, but on another way, like getting all the in jokes and stuff like that. Like, but when I was, you watched, you were kind of like the first one was like the jokes could go anywhere, any direction. It was so like open to anything, and Batman was so directed that we're like, I've heard a lot of these jokes before. Yeah, I think for me, Lego Movie Two, the biggest takeaway that I had from it was I thought the I thought the kind of. I think one of the lessons it imparts I thought was really interesting, especially for a kid's movie. Because when you watch a bunch of kid's movies, you end up with the same lessons over and over, which is, oh, uh, you can be whatever you dream. That's one that comes up again and again and again. This particular one was not everything is intended to be awesome all the time. Like, it's okay for things to suck. And that is kind of an important human lesson that a lot of us 
don't learn until later in life that it's comfortable, like, it's fine for things just to be crappy, that things kind of move in and out, and sometimes things are crappy. As a horror movie fan, I hear you. And then sometimes (laughs) things are great. And I think Lego Movie, if anything, is at its most interesting when it's conveying the idea of, hey, not everything is intended to be happy all the time. Right. I I found some of that stuff really interesting and really different. The rest of it I thought was okay. I I liked the little twist, although you saw it coming with Tiffany Haddish's evil character, Mm. maybe not being as evil as you thought she was, although I don't think it was terribly well written because they do stuff early on. You're like, how are you not actually as evil as the characters are presuming? Because this film is certainly showing that you're like really not a good character. And then the movie goes, no, but it wasn't what you thought it was at all. Um, I just, I thought it's just, there was sequelitis. It was like, let's just recapture what the first movie did. And it's amusing. And there's lots of really funny parts in it. And it's not as good as the original. Yeah. It doesn't have anything super new to offer. It's just okay. Although I did, the one thing I'll say that I think exceeds the original is the ending credits. Oh, I don't know if I stuck around for those. It's the Lonely Island. Pretty much ended and I turned it off. It's the Lonely Island doing a basically a Beastie Boys song talking about how great the credits are. And it's. Oh yeah, Fucking I missed amazing. that altogether. It's amazing. Like, like, holy shit! I'm gonna be listening to this song. The, wow, the end credits song that's about the end credits. And check out that editor; he's a badass. You know, naming people by name in the lyrics of the song rhythmically. I'm like, that's kind of badass. As that's a film cool. fan and loving people who work with film, I love that they're specifically calling out that stuff. Going, oh, that's really cool. I might actually see if that's on YouTube. Uh, but there is, we, I, there's a highly suspect review that we did with the big crew. If you want to hear more in depth stuff here, but there's a lot of bonus features here. There's everything is awesome. Sing along that, uh, which is, uh, introduction. Uh, it, it, it's additional features. Basically, it's one of those sort of pop up type of things where, uh, there's pop up trivia. There's a game of seek and find. There's a uni kitty cameo character. Uni Kitty cameo character count and a lot more. Um, there's They Come in Pieces. It's awesome, man. I would love to see a Lego horror movie called that. Um, uh, called Assembling the Lego Movie 2 for nine minutes. There's uh, Emmett's Holiday Party, a Lego movie short, which is uh, really not terribly impressive. I, I'm beyond, it's just an, It feels like just a promotional device. I mean, despite being three minutes long, I was like, Nothing, you know, usually from Pixar, you get an extra thing like that. You're yeah. like, oh, this is cool. This felt like, eh. There's uh, 12 and a half minutes of outtakes and deleted scenes. There's a music video for Super Cool, which is the thing I was telling you about. It's like, oh, man, so good. Uh, there's audio commentary with directors Mike Mit- with the director Mike Mitchell. Oh, no, it was not directed by the guys you thought it was. It was just... Story by. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very evident. Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, uh, they are on here as well as is animation director Trish Gum. Um, there's, uh, and then all the promotional materials, which actually are kind of fun. I enjoyed watching those with like little, little stuff they put on the internet or on other, uh, other things that were like kind of goofy and fun. Oh, yeah. I saw some of those when the film was being released. Like, yeah. I think they put the, I think the Tiffany Haddish character was on Hot Ones and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But this last movie, I'm actually going to call this my pick of the week. 
fighting with my family. Yeah. I thought this was tremendously fun. And I am, you are a wrestling fan. I am a wrestling fan. I am not a wrestling fan. And it's not like I hate wrestling. I just have, it just doesn't enter my world. Right. Um, I just don't know anything about it. <laughs> but this cast, holy shit. Written and directed by Stephen Merchant, first off, who I think is kind of a, a god of British comedy right now. I think mm-hmm. he's amazing. Starring Florence Pugh, who is one of, I think, the most fascinating up-and-coming young actresses working today. Yeah, about to be red hot. She's starring in Midsummer. Yeah. She's the she's the antagonist in Black Widow. Yeah. And um, in, uh, if you've not seen it, I keep telling people how great Lady Macbeth is, where that was her big breakout film, and she plays the star. And Oh, my God, that movie's so good. Uh, and then Alina Head- Hetty from Game of Thrones and multiple other things. Uh, Nick Frost, uh, Dwayne Johnson, Vince Vaughn. This is based on the true story of, uh, what is her name? Paige. Paige. With an I, right? Yeah. P-A-I-G-E. Yeah. I, I know nothing about it. You know what? You just tell this. You know. She You're the wrestling guy. She was famous for being the youngest champion in WWE history at age 21. She As won the did. women's title. Um, actually, at the time, I think it was called the Divas title. But uh, but she had a role in kind of changing those perceptions within WWE um, and 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 really coming in at a key time where, where they had got an influx of uh, female talent and started to shift their television product. But that's kind of unrelated to this movie. Um, no. The movie is, is, you know, I think the trailers for it really sold it as like her life story. But I think the meat of the of the drama in the movie is the conflict between her and her brother who have who share the same dream, and it being one of those situations where one person is able to achieve the dream and one person is not able to achieve the dream, and the friction that that causes. Uh, you know, I mean, it's called fighting with my family. It's right there in the title. The the friction that it causes within her own family. I mean, that's um, there. I don't disagree with you. Zach uh, Loden plays. The brother yeah. in question. That's there. It's a big part of it. But I don't even know if I would call that the major part of it. I either. feel like that provided way more drama than just kind of like life story stuff. Now, there is sort of like her trying to find her place in the WWE and things like that. But I felt like the film kept coming back to her relationship with her family and, and that sort of perception that the stuff with her family when they're all together are the highlights of this Mm -hmm. film for me there's a sequence where uh the son who has gotten a girl local girl pregnant yeah they have a family dinner with the with that family stephen merchant playing the dad and they're very the the, of the other family and they're very straight laced whereas the the family of the wrestlers lena headley and nick frost are like very like what boy nick frost before it's like I gotta wear a shirt. Yeah, <laughs> this is unreasonable. Uh, that sequence of that dinner had me laughing so loud I had to pause it because I thought it was just brilliant, brilliant British comedy. Like, stop it, watch it, rewatch it. Oh my god, that was great. And like, st- I can't. Believe- is that the only time we've ever seen Steve, Birch- Steve Merchant and Nick Frost together? I don't know. That might be. I, as far as I'm aware of, it is. Yeah, but, it might be. This uh, is a it's, a. it's a little. I. Yeah, I really like this movie. I think it's the best thing. You know, it's a WWE, WWE Studios film. They used to 
put out way more product. Um, I think it's probably the best thing that they've done. I've never seen oh, yeah. The Call with Halle Berry. That's I'm one not, of theirs. Oh, it's bad. Um, it's bad. Um, I know it's from the Session 9 director, so I always want to give him a fair shake. But. The, uh, um, was it the John Cena movie when they were, that was like early on where they were trying to present him? 12 Rounds? No, even before that. There's one he did called Legendary. There's 12 Rounds, there's Legendary. Oh, The Marine. The Marine. Yeah. yeah. That was bad. Yeah. <laughs> that was, I think, the may have been the first WWE film. It was early. It was really But early. they did experiment with some horror stuff I thought wasn't terrible, too. Yeah. If I'm they, not mistaken. They flirted with that. They did the, they, the, that post-apocalyptic movie, The Day, was one of theirs. Oh, shit. Um, was that theirs? Yeah. But this is them doing. Oh my God! Holy shit! A genuinely good, yeah, this like is a family good comedy sports dramedy. It's I had so much fun with yeah. this, partially because the cast is just amazingly tight and perfectly cast for these roles. But you know what I love the most about this? The film starts fooling you into thinking it's following a sports movie cliche of like. Other people were like there competing for the same part who were like, ugh, whatever, we don't like you. You know, and the main character who has to deal with that. And then it does this turnaround, which is very modern day, where it's like, no, all that shit was like, that was like camera editing tricks to make you sympathize with that character's main character's point of view, only to realize these people, they may be models or whatever, and not a people who grew up dreaming about wrestling, but that doesn't make them any less human or sympathetic or nice. Yeah. And I loved that turn on it. It was just a beautiful little turn of a movie that I have never seen happen in yeah. one of these type movies. And I was like, God damn, this is a movie I will actively recommend to people. Like people who don't normally think they like sports movies. I'd be like, this is a sports movie that you will like. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I saw this, uh, theatrically, and I saw two movies that day. I saw this and Captain Marvel, and I did not expect that I would walk out of the theater that day liking Fighting With My Family more than Captain Marvel, but there you go. Um, <laughs> I watched, yeah, and, and two female empowerment movies, you know, so it wasn't, yeah. you know, I was getting my femini- feminist on, but um, but yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was so satisfying. I think from a wrestling standpoint, you know, wrestling movies have always, always, tried to walk the line between how how much do we say is real and how much do we say is fake and what's real and what's fake and how do we treat this stuff. I will say fighting with my family takes a lot of liberties, especially when she wins the title. Like, I don't think The Rock told her immediately before she went out there that, like, hey, we're, we've decided we're going to do this for you tonight. And then she right. went out there and did it. Like, oh, no. It's there yeah. for inspirational purposes of the yeah. movie. Yeah. So, it, But it's actually The Rock, so yeah. you're like, oh, what the hell? Yeah, so it, t- it takes some liberties in regards to, like, you know, probably backstage stuff for dramatic purposes. I think if you're a forgiving wrestling fan, you can just go like, you know, that's because you guys are always so firm about it being real, you know, but that's the funny (laughs) thing about wrestling fans is they'll, they, they will be the first to go, but that's not the way it was. And it's like, okay, but you're fine buying fake entertainment. Well, this is fake entertainment. Like, let it be the fake story of Paige, highly fictionalized story of Paige, but the damn entertaining story of Paige. Yeah. Who, unfortunately, and the film doesn't provide this really as a follow-up, has already had to retire. She's already, she started so young. And in the film, you see that she basically starts at childhood. Mm-hmm. And she's, she started so young that she's already put her body through the ringer and has already, like, maxed Fuck out her capacity up. to go. Yeah. yeah. And so her career print her, her career ended, I think, like last year, year before, 
and yeah, and I mean, so that's, she's that's extreme sports for you. Yeah, you know? she's off the table now as a wrestler, but you know, she 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 debuted at a really specific key point in time in WWE's um, uh, uh, lifespan. Now, women's wrestling is like a huge part of their product. I mean, we just had a WrestleMania for the first time ever where women headlined WrestleMania, which is like, I, yeah, never happened that. before. Yeah. Our, our and, guy, John X wrote, wrote a whole yeah. piece on that where he was like, that was the best part. Yeah. And then they did match. all the other stuff. Yeah. And she came in right at the start of that, that sort of like culture shift within the company. I wouldn't say within wrestling as a whole, but certainly when where, WWE started to catch up to the rest of the world, where it went past, like we only have women here for their tits and ass exactly, yeah. to like, Oh no, these are athletes to be taken seriously. Yeah. Indeed. Um, and she was doubled, Florence Pugh, by an actual professional female wrestler on here. But she did do a lot of her own stunts, too. And she's very impressive in the role, I thought, physically. Yeah. Uh, certainly, uh, all of the characters here. There's nobody, I think, is a weak point here. Yeah. You know, this is a fun movie to watch. And even the deleted scenes, there's nine minutes of deleted, deleted and extended scenes that I'm like... I loved the shit out of watching these. There's a lot of stuff. I'm like, oh, man, I wish you had kept that in the movie. It was so much fun. I'll have to go watch this. Yeah, way fun. There's a gag reel for three minutes that's fun. There's a nine-minute, a family's passion, a making of, which is a look at the documentary that this is, for all extents and purposes, a sort of remake of Mm -hmm. that I've heard is great. I've not seen and now I want to see about the actual page. Uh, there's learning the moves for three minutes, which is a look at her, uh, the real pages work in WWE and then the actors learning to copy that. An audio commentary with uh, Stephen Merchant that honestly I will probably go back and rewatch because I think Stephen Merchant is one of the funniest people alive. Yeah. Like, have you ever played Portal 2? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know which Portal I've played, if I played one or two. Okay, Portal 2, there's a robot voiced by Stephen Merchant that's in it the whole time that is makes it one of the greatest games ever made just by virtue of the fact that Stephen Merchant is the the, the major voice you hear during it. Yeah. It's like laugh out loud funny throughout the whole game. I'm like, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a game that was genuinely funny before. It'd be like smirk funny, but not like, holy shit, that was fucking hysterical funny. Yeah. Stephen Merchant, baby. Anyway, I think we both agreed this was our pick of the week. Yeah, I would say so. I think there's some real. <laughs> I think there's some real odd. Uh, I think there's like this has been a week of oddities, and I think there are some things in here that you know if you've listened to us talk about it, and it sounds like you know that might be up my alley. It just might because we had a, a really diverse, weird uh, selection of movies this time. Yeah. We did. It was all over the goddamn place. Yeah. And just wait till the next... I don't even know if you glanced at the stack sitting next to you, but <laughs> you have some fun stuff to sit through. And some stuff I think you're dreading that you're going to like. All right. Yeah. Like, isn't it romantic? Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah? Pretty good. Watch it with your wife. I don't know. I'm just saying. So get married first before I watch it. Oh, I'm sorry. So I, thought I, you were, I thought you guys were married. Are you not married? No, we're, we're sending Boyfriend and girlfriend? Of God. You guys, I'll, I'll I'll do it right now. I got a, I got my license. 
You want me to come over, come back to your house after this? If that's what it takes for me to watch, isn't it romantic? Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, we'll be back soon. Uh, next episode will be with Aaron. He's got a massive stack himself of some super interesting and some super crazy films. Digital Noise, as always, telling you about what is worth watching with the home releases. Thank you for listening, and uh, keep watching. <laughs>